Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, I'm Libby, and I'll be reading you today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, September 29th, 2023. For today's weather outlook, we have clouds and breezy with rain in the afternoon, and it will be milder with periods of rain tonight and Saturday as well. Highs will get up into the mid to high 60s, and lows will dip down into the 70s. Sunday and Monday look beautiful. By special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we now present the lottery numbers. For Thursday's midday drawing in the numbers game, we have 8, 3, 8, and 4. The evening drawing numbers were 9, 6, 4, and 0. For mass cash, we have numbers 13, 15, 19, 31, and 35. Wednesday's Powerball drawing, the numbers were 1, 7, 46, 47, 63, and an extra ball of 7. And finally, for Tuesday's Mega Millions drawings, we have number 15, 30, 35, 42, 60, and an extra ball of 16. Lead story on page one of today's newspaper is headlined, Both Sides of Debate Hit Hyannis Street. Supporters and foes of abortion service gather near clinic by Zane Razek of the Cape Cod Times, Dateline Hyannis. A group of about 13 abortion opponents on Wednesday hoisted signs with slogans such as, Pray to End Abortion, and Love Them Both by a Hyannis Health Clinic that began providing medication abortion services July 3rd. They stood on the sidewalk outside Health Imperatives on Iano Road. A group member said they were with 40 Days for Life and declined to speak further, directing a Times reporter to the International Organization for Comment. A request for comment from 40 Days for Life was not immediately returned, But according to the website, it's an internationally coordinated 40-day campaign that aims to end abortion locally through prayer and fasting, community outreach, and a peaceful all-day vigil in front of abortion businesses. Earlier in the day, supporters of abortion access with grassroots activist organization Indivisible Mass Coalition held a counter-protest with 10 clergies from varying denominations holding prayers for choice and for women, said Lori Veninger with the group. We're planning on being there for 19 days with multiple messages about how the religious extremists don't represent the majority of the people in this country and cannot impose their worldview on us, said Veninger. Other days, the group plans to have medical professionals on the scene who are in support of abortion. In the future, members will also provide items to patients of health imperatives, such as basic toiletries, heating pads, and clothing. Basically, an antidote for thoughts and prayers, said Veninger. What is Health Imperatives? Health Imperatives has clinics in Hyannis and on Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket, as well as Brockton, New Bedford, Plymouth, and Wareham. The nonprofit began providing medication abortion at all seven locations after receiving $700,000 in new state funding. It is the first time abortion services are available on Cape Cod since 2008, 
when the abortion clinic Women's Health Center in Hyannis closed after a client died during a surgical procedure. For Martha's Vineyard, the move represented the first time medication abortion will be available by a local provider. On Nantucket, the Island Hospital has provided the service. In an emailed statement on Wednesday, Health Imperatives President and CEO Julia Kehoe said the clinic is committed to providing comprehensive health care options and supporting an individual's right to choose, and believes everyone should have access to sexual and reproductive health care. We understand and respect that individuals are free to express their opinions and beliefs, and while we acknowledge the right of organizations to stage peaceful protests, our primary concern is that our patients are safe and secure, said Kehoe. Our clinic will remain open, and we will continue to provide essential health care services to all who need them. Medication abortion. Medication abortion is an approach first authorized by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in 2000. Mifepristone is used with another medication called misoprostol to end a pregnancy that is less than 70 days developed. The pills are taken about two days apart. The medicine must be prescribed by a doctor. It is not available over-the-counter in pharmacies or other stores, though in some places only a telemedicine visit is required to get mefiprostone and mesoprostol. The protests also come after Your Options Medical, a Revere Crisis Pregnancy and Anti-Abortion Center, brought its medical mobile clinic to Cape Cod and is reported to have plans to stay on the Cape. The mobile clinic will offer pregnancy tests and ultrasound exams to women who may be pregnant. The group does not offer abortion services. Pedestrian struck by SUV near shoot, shooting Fly Hill Road in Hyannis. By Walker Armstrong of the Cape Cod Times. A pedestrian struck by a sport utility vehicle around 9.40 p.m. 9.45 p.m. Wednesday night at the intersection of Chute Flying Hill Road and Iano Road was seriously injured and taken to Cape Cod Hospital, according to the Barnstable Fire Department. Shift Captain for Barnstable Fire Department, Brian Tyson, said police responded to the scene of the crash, which involved one vehicle. No one in the SUV was injured, according to the department. The incident took place on the westbound lane of Iano Road along Route 132, which was subsequently closed for an hour and a half while authorities cleared the scene. Tyson said the Barnstable police, who could not be reached for comment at this time, are investigating the crash. The pedestrian's condition is unclear at this time, according to the Barnstable Fire Department. Police allege 10 men, most from Cape, intended to pay for sex service by Rachel Devaney of the Cape Cod Times. Ten men, primarily from Cape Cod, who are alleged to have solicited sex from undercover police officers posing as escorts online, were arrested Tuesday during a sting operation. Each man faced a charge of one count of paying for sexual conduct, according to a Barnstable Police Department press release. Arrested were Jonathan Cutler, 44, of South Yarmouth. Paul Wickles, 52, of Hyannis. Gary Soares, 40, of New Bedford. Peter Bornstein, 58, of Brewster. Almore Plummer, 47, of Hyannis. Stephen Hamilton, 57, of Chatham. John Blackledge, 44, of East Sandwich. 
Peter McLeod, 63, of Sandwich, George Wheeler, 61, of East Falmouth, and Jose Reyes, 31, of Marston's Mills. The individuals were to be arraigned in Barnstable District Court on the day of their arrest, Tuesday or the next day. As part of the sting operation, undercover officers created sex advertisements online, according to a Barnstable police report. Ten individuals responded to the advertisements and held text and phone conversations with undercover police, according to the police report. Each person arrived at an agreed-upon location where they were expecting to pay for a range of sexual services, the police said in the report. At the time of their arrival, they were met by arrest teams and arrested. The operation was a coordinated mission between Barnstable Police, Barnstable County Sheriff's Office, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Investigations, and Massachusetts State Police. On Thursday, Robert Galabois, Cape and Island's district attorney, said he could not comment on the arrests because they are part of an ongoing investigation. OK's Town Planner and Wastewater Treatment Plant by Denise Coffey of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline, Wellfleet. Seven votes. That's the number that gave Tim Sayer a victory over Kurt Felix for the open seat on the select board. Sayer collected 433 votes to Felix's 426, according to unofficial results, which included 16 write-in votes and 114 blanks, for a total of 989 votes cast overall. 32% of the town's 3,138 registered voters cast ballots in Wednesday's town election. Voters approved a ballot question to set aside $2.6 million for the design, permitting, and building of Phase 1 of a wastewater treatment system for the 95 Lawrence Road housing project, police and fire stations, and elementary school. The vote was 711 to 264, with 14 blanks. Voters approved funding for a dedicated town planner position. The new position will support the Building Commissioner and the Zoning Board of Appeals in zoning enforcement and assist in developing bylaws and housing initi initiatives. The vote was 629 to 350, with 10 blanks. The $145,000 planner position carries an annual tax impact of $32 on a home valued at $789,000, the average valued home in Wellfleet. The borrowing authorization, assuming a 20-year bond, for the wastewater treatment facility will raise property tax by about $29 a year for the average valued home. Sayer will fill out the remainder of Kathleen Bacon's term. He'll serve eight months until the next election. Sayer said his first order of business would be to get sworn in. Hopefully, I'll have a few suggestions for what's on the agenda after I'm accepted onto the board, he said. Sonnabend takes medical leave as Barnstable Police Chief by Rachel Devaney of the Cape Cod Times. Barnstable Chief of Police Matthew K. Sonnabend has taken an extended medical leave from the Barnstable Police Department, according to Lynn Poyant, Director of Communications for the Town of Barnstable. Poyant declined on Wednesday to say when Sonnabend began the leave. She would not reveal the reason for Sonnabend's request and could not provide a date for his return. Deputy Chief Jean Challies will be the interim chief in Sonnabend's absence, Poyant said. 
Sonnebent has been chief of the Barnstable Police Department since June 2018 and is a 26-year veteran of the force. Prior to joining the Barnstable Force, he served in the U.S. Army Military Police and on the Falmouth Police Force. Barnstable is the largest of the Cape's 15 towns. Sturgis Charter Public School Honored by Rashik Tabusam Mujib of the Cape Cod Times. Sturgis Charter Public School in Hyannis is one of 353 schools recognized by the U.S. Department of Education as a national blue ribbon school for 2023. We're very thrilled and proud to receive this recognition, said Paul Marble, executive director of Sturgis Charter Public School. The State Department of Elementary and Secondary Education put our name forward for this award, and it was an honor that they considered us to be deserving of the recognition. Sturgis Charter was one of seven schools in Massachusetts that received the honor. The list of schools was announced last week. The honorees for our 2023 National Blue Ribbon Schools Award have set a national example for what it means to raise the bar in education, U.S. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona said in a statement. Other Massachusetts schools were Andover West Middle School, Tahanto Regional High School, Benjamin Benneker Charter Public School in Cambridge, Hopedale Junior Senior High School, Manomet Elementary School in Plymouth, and John F. Kennedy School in Somerville. According to Marble, the recognition is especially rewarding since the school has been trying its best to cope with post-pandemic difficulties. With everything that we've been through, I think it's a real source of pride for our faculty and staff, said Marble. It's nice to know that we're meeting our mission this way, and the Department of Elementary Secondary Education from Massachusetts and the federal government sees it that way as well. It was a really nice honor to be able to share with students, faculty, and parents, and it was a really great way to start the school year, he said. What is the Blue Ribbon Recognition? The recognition is based on a school's overall academic performance or progress in closing achievement gaps among student subgroups on assessments, according to the U.S. Department of Education. The department recognizes all schools in one of two performance categories based on all student scores, subgroup student scores, and graduation rates. Exemplary high-performing schools are among their state's highest performing schools as measured by state assessments or nationally normed tests. Exemplary achievement gap closing schools are among their state's highest performing schools in closing achievement gaps between a school's student groups and all students. Nominated schools also compete in an extensive narrative application describing their school culture and philosophy, curriculum, assessments, instructional practices, professional development, leadership structures, and parent and community involvement. With its 40th cohort, the National Blue Ribbon Schools Program has so far awarded approximately 10,000 awards to more than 9,700 schools. Often to keep cap on refugees admitted to U.S. by Rebecca Santana and Matthew Lee of the Associated Press. Dateline, Washington. The Biden administration is expected to keep the cap on refugees admitted to the country at 125,000 for the next fiscal year, which begins Sunday. 
Representatives Pramila Jayapal and Gerald Nadler, both Democrats, said in a statement Wednesday the administration was keeping the cap the same. The administration consults with Congress on the number. Two U.S. officials, speaking on condition of anonymity to discuss the decision before the announcement, confirmed the cap was expected to remain at 125,000. The cap is the target for how many refugees the United States aims to admit from around the world in any given year. But it doesn't necessarily mean the U.S. will admit that many. As of the end of August, the U.S. had admitted only about 51,000 of the possible 125,000 for the current fiscal year. However, refugee advocates have noted that even that figure is a huge increase from where the program was at the end of the Trump administration and have praised government efforts to rebuild the program. The president decides every year on the refugee cap and signs a declaration laying out which regions of the world they will come from. The Biden administration is demonstrating its commitment to the United States' role in protecting vulnerable refugees by maintaining a refugee cap of 125,000 for fiscal year 2024, said the statement from Jayapal of Washington and Nadler of New York. They also applauded the administration for aiming to resettle more refugees from the Western Hemisphere, but gave no breakdown on those numbers. For decades, America admitted more refugees each year than all other countries combined, only to fall behind Canada in 2018. Admissions under the program hit an all-time low of 11,411 arrivals in 2021. But this year has seen a rise in the number of refugees admitted to the U.S. following government efforts to beef up staffing and make more trips, called circuit rides, to foreign countries to interview prospective refugees. Refugee status is different from other types of protection, such as asylum, humanitarian parole, or temporary protected status. To be admitted as refugees, people have to be living outside the U.S. They are generally referred to the State Department by the U.N.'s refugee agency, and then U.S. officials interview and vet them while they're still abroad. To seek asylum, a person has to be on U.S. soil. The decision on next year's refugee cap comes as the U.S. is seeing unprecedented numbers of migrants coming to the southern border, many hoping to seek asylum in the U.S. The Biden administration has used various paths to admit people into the country or allow them to stay once they get here, such as humanitarian parole or temporary protected status. Just last week, the president extended protection to nearly 500,000 Venezuelans already in the country and the administration has admitted tens of thousands of Ukrainians fleeing the Russian invasion and Afghans airlifted from Afghanistan on humanitarian parole. But advocates have often argued for greater use of the refugee system in large part because it provides people coming into the country with a long-term pathway to citizenship. People admitted under humanitarian parole, for example, can usually only stay for two years rule to hit colleges with poor performance, aims to protect students from high debt and low pay, by Colin Binkley of the Associated Press, Dateline, Washington. College programs that consistently leave graduates with low pay or unaffordable loans will lose access to federal money 
under a new rule being finalized by the Biden administration. The policy applies mostly to for-profit colleges, along with certificate programs at traditional universities. The Education Department says it's a step toward accountability for America's higher education system. The rule, known as gainful employment, was proposed in May and revives an Obama-era policy dismantled by the Trump administration. The department announced Wednesday that the final rule will be published October 10th. Higher education is supposed to be an invaluable investment in your future. There is nothing valuable about being ripped off or sold on a worthless degree, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona said at a press briefing. An association of for-profit colleges denounced the policy as an unfair attack, saying any policy should be applied evenly across all types of schools. The rule applies to all for-profit college programs, but not to bachelor's degrees and most graduate programs at traditional colleges. Once again, the department has rushed the process overlooking critical issues to hastily implement and weaponize a final gainful employment rule against for-profit institutions, said Jason Altmeyer, president and CEO of Career Education Colleges and Universities. The rule takes effect in July 2024, and the soonest any program could lose federal money is 2026. The rule will put college programs through two tests to determine whether they're helping students. The first test will check whether a program's graduates carry heavy student debt compared to their earnings. Programs will pass if their graduates have annual loan payments averaging no more than 8% of their total income or 20% of their discretionary income. A second test will check whether at least half of a program's graduates earn more than working adults in their state with only a high school diploma. Programs that fail either test will need to warn students that they're at risk of losing federal money. Those that fail the same test twice in any three-year period will be cut off from federal aid. That amounts to a death sentence for many programs. Advocates applauded it as a much-needed protection. The finalized gainful employment rule is a major step toward enacting more front-end protections to ensure students aren't being taken advantage of by predatory schools and programs, said Aaron Ament, president of Student Defense. The final rule made few changes to the initial proposal, despite sharp criticism from Republicans and the for-profit industry. Some for-profit colleges say the rule unfairly punishes college that enroll large numbers of students who may face wage discrimination in the workforce, including women of color. Those programs could be at risk if their graduates consistently earn lower-than-average pay. Other for-profit colleges say it could jeopardize programs in areas where there are few other options. Beauty school programs would be hit especially hard, according to an Associated Press analysis of the proposal. Nearly two-thirds of cosmetology certificates could be at risk of failing the test and losing federal money along with more than a third of such programs in massage therapy and dental support services. Cosmetology schools fought hard against the rule, saying the department has failed to consider a well-known problem in the industry, the underreporting of income to the IRS. The practice makes it look like cosmetology graduates earn less than they really do, which could penalize them under the new rule, schools say. 
The Education Department estimates the rule will protect about 700,000 students a year who would otherwise enroll in one of nearly 1,700 low-performing programs. A separate part of the rule will release new information showing students the true cost of programs across all types of colleges. The Education Department will publish data detailing the amount students pay for individual programs, including tuition, fees, and books, along with their student debt levels and earnings after graduation. These rules will stop taxpayer dollars from going to schools that continually saddle students with unaffordable debt, says James Caval, Undersecretary of Education. Separately, we're ensuring all students have increased information to make good choices. What does a federal shutdown mean? All government actions deemed non-essential halt by Stephen Groves of the Associated Press. Dateline, Washington. The federal government is just days away from a shutdown that will disrupt many services, squeeze workers, and royal politics as Republicans in the House, fueled by hard-right demands, force a confrontation over federal spending. While some government entities will be exempt, Social Security checks, for example, will still go out, other functions will be severely curtailed. Federal agencies will stop all actions deemed non-essential, and millions of federal employees, including members of the military, won't receive paychecks. What is a government shutdown? A shutdown happens when Congress fails to pass some type of funding legislation that is signed into law by the president. Lawmakers are supposed to pass 12 spending bills to fund agencies across the government, but the process is time-consuming. They often resort to passing a temporary extension to allow the government to keep operating. When no funding legislation is enacted, federal agencies have to stop all non-essential work and will not send paychecks as long as the shutdown lasts. Although employees deemed essential to public safety, such as air traffic controllers and law enforcement officers, still have to report to work, other federal employees are furloughed. Under a 2019 law, those same workers are slated to receive back pay once the funding impasse is resolved. When would a shutdown begin and how long will it last? Government funding expires October 1st, the start of the federal budget year. A shutdown will effectively begin at 12.01 a.m. Sunday if Congress is unable to pass a funding plan that the president signs into law. It is impossible to predict how long a shutdown would last. The Democratic-held Senate and Republican-controlled House are working on vastly different plans to avert a shutdown, and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is struggling to win any support from hard-right conservatives to keep the government open. Whom does a shutdown affect? Millions of federal workers face delayed paychecks when the government shuts down, including many of the roughly 2 million military personnel and more than 2 million civilian workers across the nation. Nearly 60% of federal workers are stationed in the Department of Defense, Veterans Affairs, and Homeland Security. While all of the military's active duty troops and reservists would continue to work, more than half of the Department of Defense's civilian workforce, which is roughly 440,000 people, would be furloughed. Across federal agencies, workers are stationed in all 50 states and have direct interaction with taxpayers, 
from transportation security administration agents who operate security at airports to postal service workers who deliver mail. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has said new training for air traffic controllers will be halted and another 1,000 controllers in the midst of training will be furloughed. Imagine the pressure that a controller is already under every time they take their position at work, and then imagine the added stress of coming to that job from a household with a family that can no longer count on that paycheck, Buttigieg said. Beyond federal workers, a shutdown could have far-reaching effects on government services. People applying for services like clinical trials, firearm permits, and passports could see delays. Some federal offices will also have to close or face shortened hours during a shutdown. Businesses closely connected to the federal government, such as federal contractors or tourist services around national parks, could see disruptions and downturns. The travel sector could lose $140 million daily in a shutdown, according to the U.S. Travel Industry Association. We've reached the halfway point of our program, and regular listeners are aware that at this stage of our broadcast, we move to the obituaries. Our first obituary is for Margaret E. Mahaney-Smith, Dateline Orleans. Margaret Mahaney-Smith, known to all as Meg, passed away on September 21st at the age of 65 after a tragic automobile accident. On June 5, 1958, in Waterbury, Connecticut, Meg spent most of her summers on Cape Cod in East Orleans until becoming a full-time resident, where she lived for several years before moving to Fairhope, Alaska in 2021. Deceased by her father, John Jack D. Mahaney. She is survived by her loving husband, Greg Smith, her mother, and her four children. Her joyous laughter and enduring love will carry on in her four grandchildren. Meg is also survived by her siblings, Daniel, Mary Beth, and John, and her cherished nephews and nieces, cousins, and her Aunt Mary Jane Rusa. Meg's career life started as a special education teacher, registered nurse, and nursing instructor, and finally ended with her greatest joy of being a mother and raising her children. Meg's family was one of her greatest joys. Meg was a devout Catholic who cherished spreading the word and love of Christ and encouraging young men to pursue a priestly vocation. Meg cherished her summers on Cape Cod with her children and traveling the world with them. Her love of travel and the ocean continued throughout her life and brought her on many a great adventure. Her last adventure was a move to Fairhope with her loving husband, Greg. Meg's memory will be forever cherished and her kindness Laughter and faith will continue to inspire those whose lives she touched. Family and friends are welcome to call on and visit the family at the Nickerson Funeral Home in Orleans on Monday, October 2nd from 4 to 7 p.m. A funeral mass will be celebrated on Tuesday, October 3rd at 11 a.m. at St. Joan of Arc Church on Canal Road in Orleans. A burial service will immediately follow at the Orleans Cemetery. A memorial mass will be celebrated at St. Lawrence Church in Fairhope on Monday, October 9th. A rosary will be said at 9.30 a.m. with mass following at 10 a.m. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be made to either of the following places that were so near to Meg's heart. 
the Marian Friary of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Griswold, Connecticut, or St. Joseph Abbey and Seminary College in St. Benedict, Louisiana. Online condolences, please visit the website of Nickerson Funerals. Matthew Barron, Pittston, Maine. It is with the utmost pain and sadness that we, the family of Matt, tell you of his death on September 14th. Matt died of natural causes at his and his beloved White's home in Pittston. Matt was born in Boston on May 8th, 1981. But after two days at the hospital, he was raring to get back to his true home, Cape Cod. Matt spent most of his life on the Cape. He loved going to Skakit Beach with his father, Scott, and his mother, Alexis Barron. As a teenager, Matt wanted more excitement, spending time with friends on Nauset Outer Beach. He attended the Cape Cod Lighthouse Charter School and Nauset Regional High School, where he met the love of his life, Rebecca Jezdrebski. In 2011, Matt and Rebecca married and lived the next nine years in Harwich. Together, they opened Nauset Grill on Main Street in Orleans. They operated the highly popular restaurant until 2020, when the COVID pandemic caused them to reassess their life and future goals. In 2020, Matt and Rebecca moved to Pittston, where they bought a home with a large tract of land. They planned to utilize the land for recreational activities open to the public. With this goal in mind, Matt, Rebecca, and Matt's sister Anna worked tirelessly recovering abandoned trails that meandered throughout the woods and ponds on the property. They cleared years of undergrowth to revive an apple orchard, reclaimed raspberry patches, and planted blueberry bushes. In the mornings and evenings, Matt and Rebecca watched deer, turkeys, foxes, and the occasional groundhog parade across the front acreage of their home. Matt also became somewhat of an expert at creating wonderful fireworks displays for whenever family or friends were visiting. His fireworks shows rivaled professional ones and caused Matt to consider getting his certification in that industry in the future. True to Matt and Rebecca's love of family and friends, just having someone visit prompted a fireworks display. Many of us sat on their front porch, gazing out at the night sky, waiting for the first rocket to launch. We all knew it was going to be a great show loved his family very much. Matt and his father Scott were very close all of his life. From an early age, Matt would go grocery shopping with his dad. Matt loved to tell stories about these shopping expeditions, where he learned the skills of planning meals and looking for items on sale, habits that stayed with him as an adult. He took an active interest in his siblings' lives. His brother Alex and his sister Anna could always count on a phone call or text from Matt who provided a listening ear, great advice, and comfort. His relationship with his father-in-law, Joe, was very special. Joe and Maureen also moved to Maine in 2020, and Joe described Matt as my best friend. In remembering Matt, we all recall precious moments. Thanksgiving at Matt and Rebecca's was the holiday where Matt's culinary skills and talent shone. While Rebecca prepared divine desserts, Matt focused on cooking a sublimely tender and juicy turkey. Contributions from Pat, Matt's stepmother, and Maureen, Rebecca's mother, rounded out the meal. On explorations of Maine with Rebecca, Maureen, and Joe, Matt would protest jokingly of having to go on forced marches through Acadia and other places. 
Hanukkah celebrated at his dad's and Pat's Orleans home were very special to Matt. The lighting of the candles, the recital of the prayers, and opening of gifts to be finished with dinner of bay scallops was a favorite time of Matt's to share with his dad and other family members. Matt leaves his beloved wife, Rebecca, and his dad, his stepmother, his siblings, his in-laws, his mother, and numerous aunts, uncles, and cousins, and countless friends with whom he enjoyed many Cape Cod adventures over the years. Matt also leaves his dog, Buddy, for whom he often spoke, relating exactly how Buddy viewed different situations. On September 22nd, Matt was buried in the Falmouth Jewish Congregation Cemetery at a graveside service, conducted by Rabbi Elias Lieberman. A shiva was held at the Falmouth Jewish Congregation on September 26th in the congregation's Good Chapel. Richard L. Danis, Dateline West Dennis. Richard Leo Danis, age 89, of West Dennis, passed away peacefully on September 26th, surrounded by his loving family. Born and raised in Cambridge, he was the son of the late George and Ida Keyshawn Danis. Graduating from Mattingong High School, Richard went on to work his entire career at Polaroid, working on film coding machines, and later in research and development. He was the cherished husband of Barbara Murray Denise and devoted father to Richard, Jeffrey, Michael, and Susan. Beloved brother to Charlotte and George, he was a loving grandfather to many, as well as his many grandchildren. Richard loved working on his lawn, fishing off the rocks at Lighthouse Inn, and surf casting at West Dennis Beach, where he was constantly in pursuit of catching a 40-pound striped bass. His family will fondly remember his boisterous laugh, how he always had a friendly smile and hello for his neighbors, and carried dog treats in his pockets for the dogs walking by his house. Richard's love of fishing his love for his family and his warm spirit will forever be etched in his family's hearts. Relatives and friends are invited to visitation at the Hallett Funeral Home on Station Avenue in South Yarmouth on October 1st from 1 to 3 p.m. Funeral Mass will be celebrated at St. Pius Parish on Station Ave on October 2nd at 10.30 a.m. A private family burial will be held at a later date. Hi. Dateline Mashpee. Robert Bob Fry, age 81, of Mashpee, passed away peacefully at Cape Cod Hospital under hospice care and after visits from his loving family on September 25th. He was the son of the late Gerhard and Clara Engelhardt Fry. Bob was born in New York City and grew up in New York before moving to Vermont, where he raised his children. After moving back to New York State and retiring, he lived his last decade on Cape Cod. He enjoyed playing canasta at the Mashpee Senior Center, where he met his longtime and loving companion, Flo. He loved traveling, music, card games, and was an avid reader and collector. Bob is survived by two children, Bob and Deb, his dearest cousin Linda, and four grandchildren. Memorial services will be private. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund or a charity of one's choice in Bob's name. For the online guestbook and condolences, please visit the website of Chapman Funeral. Raymond Claire Barker, Dateline Chatham. 
Raymond Ray Blair Barker, age 77, of Chatham, died Saturday, September 23rd, in Lawrence. He was born on December 27, 1945, in Newton, son of the late Philip L. Barker and Marjorie Chase Barker. Ray served in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War, where he was awarded a Purple Heart, the National Defense Service Medal, the Marksman M14 Medal, a Vietnam Service Medal with two bronze stars, a Vietnam Campaign Medal with device, and the Combat Infantryman Badge, and we thank him for his service. Upon leaving the military, Ray attended the New England Aeronautical Institute, Daniel Webster Junior College, where he received an associate's degree in science. He then received a bachelor's degree in business administration from UNH. Ray began working for the Chatham Bars Inn during his high school years on the golf course. There, he worked his way up from bartender to beverage manager, where he was employed for over 50 years. He purchased land in Chatham and had a four-bedroom Cape-style home built. He was an active participant during the construction process and built the brick stairs at the front of the house. Aside from his parents, Raymond is predeceased by his brothers Philip and George. Survivors include his sister Mary Elizabeth and his cousin Susan. Visitation hours will be held on Friday, September 29th from 10 to noon at the Davis Funeral Home on Lock Street in Nashua, New Hampshire. A church service will follow at the Church of the Good Shepherd on Main Street in Nashua at 12.30 p.m. Interment will follow at the Edgewood Cemetery on Amherst Street in Nashua at 1.30 p.m. with full military honors. The Davis Funeral Home has been placed in charge of arrangements. One memory lights another. Today's Ask Carolyn column is headlined, What do you say to a parent who mocks your kid's name on Facebook? Dear Carolyn, at a back-to-school event, a teacher stumbled over my child's name. My child gave the correct pronunciation, and that was that. Or I thought it was, until afterward on Facebook, I saw a parent had posted, Who thought naming a child, my child's name, was a good idea? I was astonished. It was a woman I am friendly with who has a child in the same class as my child. The name is unusual in this country, but it's common in the country my grandparents come from and was chosen as a tribute to them. My child likes the name and has never asked to go by a nickname or given any indication that other kids make fun of it. As far as I know, this other parent is the only person who has a problem with it. Should I say something to her? Another parent I consider a friend clicked like on her post, and another commented, this post is unkind of you. Should I thank that parent? Confront my friend about why she liked a post mocking my child's name? I just have no idea how to deal with this. Signed, Mocked. Dear Mocked, outbreak of mass public scoffing over an unusual name. Two pylons come to mind over Absidy, and S-Pin. Thank you for the reminder of how smug, mean-spirited, and presumptuous it is to do this, no matter how unwise a name seems to the person scoffing at it. Your story perfectly captures why. The poster thinks she's absolutely justified in her criticism, or else she wouldn't go public, 
and you absolutely believe it's a meaningful, appropriate name, or else you wouldn't have chosen it. And there you have it, the baseline eye of the beholder transaction behind every name ever given. Therefore, the only rational, non-obnoxious conclusion is that no one gets to decide they're the ones drawing the line in the right place between good and bad name ideas, except with the very few names that are legally prohibited. Therefore, the only unsmug response to someone else's name, any name, is to make a good-faith effort to pronounce it correctly. Humility is a beautiful thing. If you're so sure a kid will suffer for it, then A, be equally assured a kid can change it, and B, why would you want to inflict that suffering yourself? Which brings me to your options regarding the smug, mean-spirited Facebook post. If I'd seen your question in the live chat queue, I'd have advised you to comment on the post. I thought that name was a good idea. Still do, and my child agrees. In taking ownership, you would have owned, in the juicier sense, this rude parent. If you didn't respond then, I encourage you to talk to each of the people you mention. To the original poster, I hope you grasp that there was a real person at the other end of your Facebook post singled out for your ridicule. To the one who clicked like, I saw you like that post mocking my child's name. That hurt. To the one who stood up for you, thank you for calling that Facebook post unkind. Why do this when it's just a stupid social media post? Because the remedy to anti-social media cowardice is a human face. You can put yours right in front of theirs, holding the mean ones to account. The Best Bets column is headlined, Stories of Cape's Dark Side, Bebop Vocalist Visits Falmouth, by Gwen Friss of the Cape Cod Times. There is always something to do on Cape Cod and the islands. In addition to the list of Oktoberfest celebrations that ran last week in Cape Week, this week brings a whole new lineup of music, culture, local authors, and other events. Celebrate National Hispanic Month and George Gershwin's 125th birthday at a Calliope in Blue concert at Thatcher Hall in Yarmouthport. Calliope is one of 50 reed quintets in the world. If you enjoy bebop and swing, listen in as vocalist Katie Georgi performs at West Falmouth Library or visit the day-long family-friendly Vinegrass Music Festival at Truro Vineyards of Cape Cod. Spend Sunday, October 1st immersed in the Wampanoag culture at the third annual Culture and Crafts Fair at Highfield Hall and Gardens. To mark National Recovery Month, Angela Shepard talks about how community helps people walk beyond the harrowing path of addiction. And Cape-based photographer-journalist Mark Chester explores favorite bits of Americana he uncovered on the path to his latest book, Roadshow Anthropology. Here are some specifics. Learn how a community can help with addiction during Osterville Talk. Angela Shepard, author of As She Recovers, will speak about her first book at 2 p.m. today, Friday, September 29th, at the Osterville Village Library on Wiano Avenue. Shepard's appearance, in honor of September being National Recovery Month, looks at how addiction can rip a life apart. But according to the library's announcement, within the mystery of the miracle of community, we do recover. For more information on the event, call the library. 
Canadian vocalist, performs in West Falmouth. Katie George, a two-time Juno Award-winning Canadian vocalist, will perform at 7 p.m. tonight, September 29th, at the West Falmouth Library. George is known for singing bebop and swing music. Roadshow Anthropology travels to Truro. Cape Cod-based photographer and journalist Mark Chester will showcase his latest book, Roadshow Anthropology, at 2 p.m. Saturday, September 30th at the Truro Public Library in North Truro. Chester will show some of the black and white photographs he captured from the driver's seat while exploring, with humor and pathos, the country's highways and byways. As a social commentator and a connoisseur of Americana, Chester pays homage to a range of influences, including the work of photojournalist Lee Friedlander, according to a written release about the book, which is being published today by the University of Massachusetts Press. Chester's last project, The Bay State, a Multicultural Landscape, involved his tracking down a Massachusetts resident from each of the world's countries. That exhibit has toured the Commonwealth, with copies of the book being given to school libraries. Celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month with Calliope in Blue concert at Yarmouthport. Thatcher Hall on Route 6A in Yarmouthport will be the setting at 7 p.m. Saturday, September 30th, for a Blue-inspired program celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month and George Gershwin's 125th birthday. Sponsored by Thatcher Hall and the Historical Society of Old Yarmouth, the concert features the Calliope Reed Quintet, one of 50 Reed Quintets in the world. Members say they're working to create more and diverse chamber music for Reed instruments. Tickets are $30 for adults and free for those under 18 and are available online. Thatcher Hall is not wheelchair accessible. Parking is available across 6A from Thatcher Hall around the Common as well as at the post office. The concert features works from living composers across Latin America, including Abraham Gomez, Nubia Jaime Don Juan, and two Calliope commissions, Miguel de la Guila's Transoceanica, musically depicting an adventurous bus ride from Rio to Lima, Peru, followed by Peruvian-American composer Daniel Cueto's Amaru. In honor of Gershwin's birthday, the group will play selections from Blue Monday and Rhapsody in Blue. Sagamore Fundraiser offers a chance to bid on flips. Four teams compete to flip yard sale finds and sell them for the highest prices at a Cape Cod Flips for Colorful Children fundraiser from an 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Saturday, September 30th in the Canal Side Pavilion at the Sagamore Inn. Tickets are $10 and may be purchased at the Inn's website. The team that makes the biggest profit wins bragging rights and fun prizes. Money raised supports Colorful Kids, a nonprofit that creates room makeovers for kids in need. Burrow Vineyards brings back Vinegrass Festival. The ninth annual Vinegrass Music Festival will be held from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Sunday, October 1st at Truro Vineyards of Cape Cod on Shore Road in North Truro. Bands on the schedule include the High Hawks, Twisted Pine, The Last Revel, and Monica Rizzio's Roundup.
The event with food and drink for sale is the principal fundraiser for the Vinegrass Organization, a nonprofit supporting local music. Explore the dark side of Cape Cod in Falmouth. At 5 p.m. on Thursday, October 5th, author Dana Cameron talks about Cape Cod Noir, a collection of fictional short stories from authors about the area's more wicked side. Hear about the writing process and delve into her research about what Cape Cod stories inspired the writers. The press release said, Appetizers and wine will be served. Tickets are $20 or 10 for members at Cape Cod Museums on the Green on Palmer Avenue in Falmouth. Cape Cod in a can? Four friends who summer on the Cape created a hard tea by Gwen Friss of the Cape Cod Times. Like many students, Ben Carbeau, Peter Nelson, Ollie Cheever, and Harrison Hill returned to their respective colleges for the fall semester. But the four friends who have spent several weeks on Cape Cod left a summer project that continues even after its creators are back at the books. Over the summer, the friends crafted and launched Cape Tide Hard Tea, a line of teas in lemon, peach, and raspberry that contained vodka, tea, and fruit juice with no additives, carbonation, or added sugars. Each can is 120 calories and five grams of sugar, about a fifth of an average candy bar. We're projecting to sell approximately 2,000 cases of Cape Tide in 2023. In 2024, we're projecting to sell approximately 8,000 cases, Nelson wrote in a follow-up email, noting that each case contains 24 cans. We have 102 accounts, primarily concentrated on the Cape, said Carbo during a late summer interview at Shipwrecked in Falmouth Heights, where Cape Tide is on the menu for $8 per 12-ounce can. The retail price for a four-pack is $9.99 to $10.99, Nelson said. Cape Tide is canned at a facility in Framingham. Its creators are hoping to add a cranberry flavor next summer. The four of us spent every summer on the Cape for years, Carbo said, and we wanted to create something that had that feeling of just hanging out with friends and enjoying the Cape like we do. Nelson said the friends discarded the idea of a malt beverage because they wanted a lighter, breezier taste with fewer calories. The taste test took place while sitting on tall stools at Shipwreck's outdoor bar directly across from the beach. Some days, this is not a job, it's an adventure. Cape Tide does have a light, breezy taste. Don't be fooled, it is 5% alcohol by volume. The first taste is vodka with a mild taste of tea threaded through and all of that surrounded by peach, lemon, or raspberry. Along with a clean taste, the friends heavily marketed the drink as an accompaniment to a carefree summer. The friends marketed their product that way, creating a mascot, Alfie the Gray Seal, and took turns donning the costume for festivals like Coast Fest in Falmouth. We're starting to get a little social buzz and the seal is very helpful, Nelson said. While Cape Tide came together in a summer, finding a name was the hardest, the co-founders said. It was not without trial and error. During the summer of 2022, the team tried to create a microbrewery for craft beer. We found out we weren't very good at brewing beer, Nelson said with a self-deprecating smile. 
so we tried hard tea. They think they're a big dog. Doxies gather in Barnstable Village. By Amber May Revide, contributing writer to the Cape Cod Times. Humans aren't the only ones who gather for reunions. Dachshunds, also known as wiener dogs, sausage dogs, and doxies, will gather for Cape Cod Doxy Day from noon to 3 p.m. September 30th in Barnstable Village behind the courthouse on Main Street. Dachshund lovers travel from near and far to gather for the annual celebration of the beloved hot dog. Just looking at them makes you smile, said Eva Carbonaro, president of the Cape Cod Doxy Day organization which holds the event, because they're just so funny and full of personality. They think they're a big dog. They take over your heart. Doxy Day will feature a variety of contests, a parade, and other activities for dachshunds, wiener wannabes, or other dogs, and the canine's human friends. Among them are the owner and pet look-alike contest. You might want to plan your outfits accordingly for this one. According to Carbonaro, this contest was inspired by an owner whose goatee matched that of his wired-haired dachshund. Sometimes people will dress up like their doxies, she said. Last year, we had a couple that dressed in lederhosen, and their dachshunds did too. It was really fun to watch how people get into it. The Wiener Waddle and Wagon Parade. The parade features doxies in strollers and decorative wagons. Carbonaro says one year, someone decorated a wagon with a Jaws theme, and another featured dogs in a picnic table scene, complete with red checkered tablecloth. Another was made up as an ambulance, with humans dressed up as a nurse and doctor, and their pup as a patient. People get really creative, Carbonaro said. The Doxy Day Cafe. Baristas will be on hand to, ser to serve up puppuccinos and other treats. You might want to start going over the flavors with your pup now. This year, we're doing a pumpkin spice peanut butter banana, the Elvis, so they can get all kinds of combinations of different flavors and enjoy those. They go crazy over them. Singing of the official Doc's song. Carbonaro says you have to hear it to believe it. Oh my goodness, you have to come and find out what it's like, she says. It's kind of like a waltz, I guess. And the ukulele club will be there, and they'll have a sing-along. Carbonara adds that the members of the Cape Cod Ukulele Club are just amazing. They'll do songs about hound dogs and that kind of stuff to entertain people. And a lot of times they come dressed up too, which is fun. In addition to these and other activities, Doxy Day will bring together people who have taken in dogs through Paw Affection Dachshund Rescue. The nonprofit organization not only rescues dachshunds, but other small breeds and places them with foster families. This is like a destination for them, the dogs, the foster families, and members of the organization, and a reunion for them, Carbonaro says. To see the transformation of these dogs when they find their forever homes is just amazing. This year's proceeds will go to Friends of Falmouth Dogs, which provide shelter and care for abandoned and stray animals, among other services. Admission is free, and more information on Doxy Day can be found at the website ccdoxyday.com. That's all I have time for today. This is your reader, Libby, saying thanks for listening.